Hello, and welcome to Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity, where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Diego Ponce de Leon Burrito about sustainability and data. Diego Ponce de Leon Burrito is a recent PhD in energy and resources at Berkeley. His graduate research focused on using national and global data to make predictions about electricity grid demand and its health. He also worked in the development of technology for flexible demand and behavioral energy efficiency in resource-constrained environments. We'll be talking about his research and its implications, what he's up to now, and ask him why you'd call him if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now, welcome, Diego. Okay, well, Diego, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks so much for being here. Um, so why don't you give a quick introduction about yourself, and then we'll jump into some questions. Hi, everyone. I'm Diego. I am currently the CEO of a company called Sinampa that works on building data networks for people and planet, focused around smart energy for Latin America and environmental justice in the same region. I'm originally from Mexico City, but I moved around and I lived in Wales, in the UK for a couple of years, lived in Boston, Minneapolis, Central America, a little bit of East Africa, and I did my PhD at UC Berkeley. And this is, I'm living in California now for almost now seven years. And it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Wonderful. Really appreciate your time. So our, our last interview was with Nikki Avila, who also went to Cal Berkeley. She did a lot of work on energy policy and the social equity of energy. Your work seems to be a lot more about how do we use data to actually make that policy and make that vision come to life. So let's talk a little bit about the grid today um, and how we can effectively use intelligence to make us better. Yes. Um, the research that I was doing at UC Berkeley was a focus on how the future of smart systems, in particular related to energy, could look like in emerging economies. So I was per- working particularly in Central America and East Africa to see how the grid of the future could look like today in these places. What technology do we use? What data systems do we put in place to make the systems work properly? The reason why it was so interesting to work in Central America and East Africa is because they are relatively poor regions of the world that are moving very fast towards a low carbon economy. So Nicaragua in particular, it's a very interesting example because it's one, the second or third poorest country in our hemisphere, mm-hmm. where it produces more than 50% of its total generation from non-large hydropower renewable energy. So this brings a big challenge to the grid. And we ask the questions, what data do we collect to make the system work properly in this now low carbon present? And how do we put in place technology to manage these large amounts of wind and solar that are coming to the grid? And how do we make that technology available for everyone so that can, everyone can benefit from this transition to clean energy? Those are the questions that I was asking, yeah. Is this new energy sources or is this something that's replacing coal? Some of them are new because the country is still expanding its, the capacity of its generation fleet. But in m- many cases, it's also replacing particularly bunker fuel oil, which is one of the most dirty sources of energy that you can find anywhere in the world. This is really interesting as well, because the reason why it's bunker fuel oil is because it was very sip- cheap subsidized oil from Venezuela. So wind farms, biomass, geothermal energy, solar, and small hydro are all being used to replace bunker fuel oil in this country in particular, but all across Central America. Really. With that new introduction of new, of new types of renewables into the grid today, how can we effectively use data and intelligence to make that better? 
currently, there's, there's several ways to deal with this. One of them, the most obvious one, for example, what you see in California and some other places, it's balancing the grid, which is making sure that supply and demand of energy is met at all times using large hydropower as a battery. So when it falls, you deploy this really quick amount of hydropower energy to the grid to meet that demand. Or you can use these very big generators of natural gas to meet that demand. Okay. You also have newer strategies like batteries, like the batteries that Tesla is making that can store energy, but also supply it when it's in low supply in other parts of the grid. Another strategy is something called flexible demand. And that for me was the most interesting part because it allows us to collaborate with the grid as human beings and with our homes and businesses. I'll give you an example. So what I was working on is in your house, you have something called thermostatically controlled loads or loads that are controlled through thermostats. These are refrigerators and air conditioners that have like an internal cold storage when they're turned off. And the idea here is that you can deploy wireless sensor networks to control these loads at different times of the day to help balance the grid as if they were batteries. So for the PhD, I was working on designing the sensor networks and designing a project on installing them on the grid so that people could get paid for providing services to the grid while helping to balance it. That's what we was, I was working on. The data you collect here is um, very, really high resolution data related to energy consumption of appliances everywhere in the home. You con you're collecting temperature data inside the home and the fridge and the air conditioner. You're collecting data through weather stations, and all of this is being aggregated and controlled in the cloud. So you have to really build a system from the bottom up if you're trying to pilot a next level generation technology, particularly for a region like Nicaragua. So we're not just seeing just new technologies. We're also seeing new softwares and new ways to manipulate the technologies that are being built. Oh, for sure. The technology itself, the sensors exist, but what you're creating is a new way of aggregating the data a new system, a new approach. So I'll give you an example. So in, in Managua, the houses and businesses that we were working with, many of them did not have internet, right? So how can you have yeah, can you a smart system where you don't have internet, right? So this is one of the biggest challenges. And here, we went to these homes, we have to think creatively about how to connect everything. Hmm. So we go to every home and business and we create a local Wi-Fi network. From the small computer that we brought in through the microprocessor, it would enable this local Wi-Fi network. They would allow all these wireless sensor networks to com com communicate with it. Hmm. Inside there, we have three options to send the data. One of them could be through radio. The other one was through a 3G modem that we installed, but that's really expensive. There's another new option called the LoRa network, which is another um, communication protocol for sending data through large distances using very little costs. And the other one's actually enabling a local hotspot with the user's phone. So when you think about the future of how the smart grid is going to look like in these countries, it's really hard to predict how it's going to go. I don't know if everyone's going to have internet in their home or there's going to be like the local shop that sells cheese is going to have the local Wi-Fi network yeah. that would enable everything to be possible. So we really, we were testing things out. But of course, if you're piloting something, you have to go through the most robust way of sending data. So we chose the 3G modem. It's interesting that the development within this space is so tied to other spaces like mobile technology and like internet. Maybe we do think about what's data, what data is required. We don't think about how to actually get that data from point A to point B. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating. So one thing that we didn't implement, which I thought was the most interesting one, is that in some of these relatively poorer economic countries, Facebook gives 
Facebook and WhatsApp for free in many of the data packages. Hmm. So if you're able to connect your sensor networks to a WhatsApp messaging group, you'd be able essentially to send small snippets of data for free related to the smart grid that can be useful to optimize the system using a free communication protocol like WhatsApp or Facebook. We didn't get there, right? Wow. But it's one of the things that really opens up the possibilities and you have to be creative when you're thinking about all possibilities you can to keep the system at low cost to provide the maximum level of service. And sometimes in some richer countries, you don't really go to that next step of innovation because there's money available, yeah. right? But if you um, create technology in places where it's scarce, where money is scarce, then you get a little bit chance to innovate a little bit step forward. So, so that's how you communicate the data. Obviously, you also need to decide what data is valuable and mm-hmm. how you're actually going to gather it. How do you decide what data is necessary to make the system more efficient? Yeah, this is also really interesting. So at first, I knew what data I needed to collect based on an optimization uh, control system, how these electrical loads like the refrigerators and air conditioners are used to balance the grid. They'll tell you when you read papers what you need to collect. You need to collect the dead band of the thermostat, so the minimum and the high temperature. Hmm. You need to collect um, data on how long it takes for a refrigerator or conditioner to move through this dead band. You need to collect something called the duty cycle, the ratio of the amount of time when the fridge is on versus when it's off, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And this is all decided theoretically, so you know what you're getting from the beginning. But one thing I realized is that many of these engineering papers are theoretical. So they imagine, what if we put these sensors on these fridges and they model millions of them? but they don't take into account how humans actually come and disrupt the system. So these papers mention nothing about the number of times the door is open at different times of the day. Or they say nothing about how temperature changes within the home during the day. Or they say nothing about the quality of insulation within the fridge. And all these variables dramatically affect the outcome. If you have a shop that's being open many times during the day when you're supposed to control the load to make a decision for the grid, then it loses a lot of this potential to store energy. Or if the fridge is very poor insulated, then you've, miss, you've underestimated or overestimated its ability to provide services to the grid. Mm. At the same time, if you did not collect data on ambient temperature within the room where the fridge is or the air conditioner is, then you don't know. That temperature also affects the ability of the fridge to store energy or the air conditioner to store energy within the room. So all these variables we only found that we had to collect this data once we were in the field. Wow. And that's adding up really quickly to five or 10 sensors, even just around your fridge to get an accurate reading. Yeah, exactly. So you put this data in both the living room and uh, you also do it in, in, the, in the ambient temperature in the room, in the fridge, but also the weather station that we were collecting uh, throughout the city. So when you're talking about these devices, what sort of devices are actually involved in this group of connectivity, the Internet of Things, around energy and and water management? Yeah, so in the particular case, you can go many different ways in designing a system like this. We wanted to go for something very robust that was able to do local calculations. So if you're doing local calculations, I mean local calculations next within your home with a microprocessor, you would choose something like an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi. And uses a lot of energy, but it also has the capacity to do calculations locally, which is something we needed. On the other hand, if you're doing something very tailored made that is consuming very little energy in the field, then you would build your own custom-made microprocessor. So it really depends on what you need. 
So, and then afterwards, we, we used for this pilot all really all the shelf components. The only thing we did was build, so we had a Raspberry Pi, and then we built our own shield. And the shield is where you connect all the sensors to this microprocessor. And it would be temperature sensors, ambient temperature sensor, two motion sensors, and then seven sensors for measuring electricity. So they were behind the fridge, they were behind the AC, they were behind the television, behind the radio, and then a much larger one that was connected as a current clamp at the circuit breaker in the house or business. And all of them communicated in different protocols. One of them was Z-Wave. The other ones were Wi-Fi to our Raspberry Pi. And this one would stream data to the cloud through 3G. So these are the systems. You can really build anything um, with a Raspberry Pi and Arduino. And this is like, I would say that's the first step in prototyping something, just going with like the most robust thing you can do. And so for accurate data, you need one of these setups in every household, right? Or a representative sample of households. Even just like the production of those seven to 10 devices, that takes energy, right? How do you justify the trade-off of the production of those devices, the, the operation of those devices against the benefit? Yeah, this is actually a great question. And this goes to another question that uh, is actually something that I'm doing now for my company. And it relates to seeing the counterfactual between what could be and what you're actually doing. So imagine if a city like Nicaragua, like Managua was going to build the next generation of a smart grid. It has two choices. One of them is doing it like the U.S. has done it or the, how Europe has done it, which is, hey, let's put a smart meter everywhere. And then you have all this metal and you have all these wires mm. and all these sensors and all these poles you have to build everywhere. That's a lot of energy. I agree with you. The other one is creating the representative sample like you suggested and using much less technology, but using collecting more high-resolution data to create representative samples that give you a nice distribution that could look very similar mm. to what you would have done if you put smart meters everywhere. So we're working with a hypothesis that you can save much more energy and resources if you collect really high-resolution data through representative samples than if you put a smart meter everywhere. So my argument of like how do we justify doing the experiment that we did is by saying that, hey, we're doing this because the counterfactual to this is putting one in everyone's home, yeah. which is much more labor expensive and resource intensive. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting way to think about it. I've always expected it to be something that you need to do in every home. But I, I, I guess the way that you use your fridge is probably not too different the way that your neighbor a couple doors down uses the fridge. Yeah. I mean, and just look at, look at like, ask yourself that question and your family and friends and ask them next time you see them, how many times do you look at your utility bill? Most of them will say never. Yeah, you just pay it when it arrives. Right? You know? Exactly. And everyone at the world, this, around the world does the same thing. Even I myself, I just pay the bill. Yeah. Who needs the data are the decision makers. But they want to know like a distribution on an average how it looks like. Yeah. So my argument, my hypothesis, is we're, send, we're spending a lot of money without really thinking about how we collect data. We have to think much more carefully about how we collect data and why. Great. So, so let's say we have all the data. Perfect world. How would you use it to accurately predict grid use? And what does that mean to the consumer? Yes, this is really useful. So this now you're asking a question that really goes from bottom-up data, which is what we were collecting, this micro-level data, to bot, like top-down data, which is really everything that you can get under the sun, prices, demand, weather, hmm. um, city demand. So there's two things. There's data for decision-making for the long-term, and there's data for immediate action for the short term. So data for decision-making in the past used to be medium, low-resolution data. Now we need really high-resolution data. 
and therefore immediate action has always needed to be as high resolution as possible. So for talking about data for decision making, if I collect this really high resolution data for with sensors, it allows the city to better predict changes in consumption patterns. When do people use more energy when it's, what are the temperatures at which we expect big fluctuations in demand? And what are the appliances that consume more energy during these periods of time? This really high resolution data allows you to add more parameters to your machine learning or artificial intelligence prediction model to see how demand might change an hour ahead of now or 15 minutes or and the next day or the next week, which allows you to better procure resources for decision making, which saves you money and CO2 emissions. Another thing, so this is in the short term, just procurement of energy. Mm -hmm. It also allows you to plan better energy efficiency programs because now you know exactly what's happening without homes on average, which is really important for spending those tax dollars for programs like this. Then you have really long-term decision-making on how the World Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank or say the, the CPUC might want to invest all the money that it has saved for infrastructure. If you had this really high resolution data, you're better able to predict, hey, 30 years from now, we won't need those two, three natural gas plants because we really understand demand, have really improved our prediction algorithms, and can better use resources instead of having this field, this three, four, five plants or more, I think much more, waiting to be used in case there's a drop in demand that we did not see. So really high resolution data allows you to save money now, yeah. but also like hundreds of millions of dollars in the future. So what is missing from the solution to get us there? Like what are what are upcoming technologies, hardware or software that will change this space and, and allow us to have that high fidelity data? Oh, you know, this is I mean, these are this is a yet another super interesting question. Cause I don't think it's a problem of technology anymore. Hmm. I used to be in that school of thought, but I no longer am. So this is why I got into the technology because I was like, hey, this technology is gonna solve all problems. This is panacea if we have it and put it in place and we decide the algorithms and problem solved, we're done. Mm -hmm. But now I've realized that we have all the data we need, really. We have the technology, it's there, but we are not being, we're not implementing it. It's not because it's hard. It's just because there's, the system is so well accustomed to the status quo that it's, it's hard to move. Huh. I'll give you an example that is not related to energy, if it's okay. Yeah. So this example is actually from machine learning and artificial intelligence for deforestation protection, so environmental conservation. There is a project called the Global Forest Watch. They have the highest resolution data on real-time deforestation around the world. And they've been able to engage Brazil and to track real-time what's happening with deforestation in Brazil. We have the data. We know what's happening. This data allows for really good policies to be designed. However, Brazil elected this year a president that is thinking about merging the agriculture and environment ministries to push further with agricultural policies for the Amazon. Hmm. He's thinking about having Brazil leave the climate agreement from Paris. So, and similar, right? So you have in, in the US, you have amazing engineers, you have amazing technology, you have amazing data systems, and still there's no progress on climate or energy transitions. Yeah, our last episode, we talked with Nikki about some of those societal pressures and governmental pressures. And we were hmm. saying most of them are very positive, but I guess this is an example of where we have everything we need to make the decision. We're just not getting there because of those barriers. Yeah. And to be honest, I think part of it is technologists themselves. I'm not going to say policymakers and politicians because they've always been the same. Yeah. But the people who have to change now are people who work on technology. And they have to stop, start, start saying, hey, fine, we have this great technology and it works. 
we need to start pushing forward and be engaged more with policy and politicians to um, stop saying that technology is really the solution. It's like, it's just part of it. It's like 50, I would say it's not even 50% of it. I would say it's like 30% of the solution is technology. We just have to get out there and do it. Yes. I mean, you have to pilot things. You have to, what I did in Nicaragua, Nicaragua is an extremely poor country. It, it was hypothesized that it wasn't ready for this next leap in transitions. And we deployed it. We were successful at putting this technology in the ground. When I met the CEO of the utility, he wasn't having any of it. He was not interested. Wow. And the reason why is because every kilowatt hour that I was saving from his users was a kilowatt hour that he was not able to sell. Yeah. So I mean, this goes to the really highest level, right? So you might have the technology. The technology can be disruptive. But if the status quo is going to push against you, then you have to lobby both on the technology side, but also from the policy side. Ultimately, they're going to have to be on your side. There's got to be some sort of benefit to producing the right amount of energy as opposed to just overproducing energy. Do you see that being something that's truly profitable for the energy companies or the politicians that will it eventually be the right answer for everybody? I think eventually it will be the right answer for everyone. But if there are some countries in which the right incentives are not in place yet to make this a success everywhere. One of the reasons why California has been able to move so fast on energy efficiency and smart energy systems is because in the 70s, they deployed or implemented a policy called decoupling. And decoupling allowed the utility to split its revenues from its sales of energy. Hmm. So its revenue no longer depended on how many kilowatt hours they sell. It depended on an agreement that they had with their regulator. And this allowed them to pursue energy efficiency aggressively without being scared of losing those megawatt hour sales. That's interesting. And that, re- that was a really a huge policy change that we forget about when we think about this energy transition that the California had in place decades ago, something that I really allowed it to leapfrog. But now we go around the world expecting the rest of the world to follow the same transition we have without having these root policies in place to really move forward. So when I, when I talk about Nicaragua, and the C- I was talking to the, to, the, to the CEO of the utility, he said, okay, if I, it's true that you're allowing me to have lower costs because I'm saving energy because of flexible demand. I really appreciate that. But if I show the regulator that I'm spending less money, then he or she is going to force me to lower my rates next year. Yeah. And I don't want to lower my rates. So again, the incentives were not this in place for them to do this. So the next step for many places in the region is to really push forward on these baseline policies that can allow technology and innovation to succeed. So that's how we need to start approaching it at the governmental level or the large organization level. Your research mm-hmm. also mentions microcredit schemes as incentives for appropriate grid use. Yes. Is that for just the consumer only or is that would that also benefit the larger organizations? And can you explain what microcredit schemes are? Yeah, you actually prepared this podcast very well because this is actually, when I was thinking about um, what solutions you might have to something that is so overwhelming as a government doesn't want to help, this was the next step that I was thinking about. So if you don't have a government supporting your innovation or your technology, you need to work with people and communities directly to support this program. So currently how it's done in the US and Europe is that um, the government supports these rebate programs where you exchange your appliances for more efficient ones, so they subsidize them. In a place like Nicaragua, you have to do it despite of the government. Mm. So what we designed here was a scheme in which I would go to your house, say, Colin, imagine you live in a low, low-middle-income neighborhood of Managua or Nicaragua or somewhere in Latin America, 
and no one has ever approached you to see how you can improve your service, okay? And we knock on your door and we say, Colin, we're going to insulate your house, your rooftop for free. We're going to uh, swap you towards a really like ultra efficient appliance for a refrigerator in exchange of you giving us full control of your appliances. You allow us to turn them on and off at different times of the day. Wow. And we can get that energy and arbitrage into the energy system. And we don't need the permission of the government to do this because everything is inside your home and your business. We'll retrofit your home. We'll give you new appliances. You'll get even a little, a small paycheck at the end of the month. But you need to sign up here, full control of your appliances. Hmm. And you know, that's, this is the exact experiment that we did. And 90% of the people who we approached said yes. Wow. I feel like I would need to be convinced. <laughs> I'd, I'd want to be able to use so, my toaster. So, yeah, tell me. No, no, please, please. Why would you need to be convinced? Tell me. I, I feel like I'd want to be able to use my microwave when I wanted to use it. Or if I would, if my feet were cold, I'd want to be able to turn on the heater. Yes, definitely. So you'd still be able to do that, except sometimes when we wouldn't be allowed to do it, which wouldn't be always. And this is good and bad. This, is, this goes into like some pretty murky territory of justice in energy transitions. If your fraction of income that you spend on energy is much higher, then you are maybe willing a little bit to give away some of these rights that you should have. I agree yeah. with you. The other one is that you're getting paid to do it. Third one is that, and this was really interesting when we're working through this neighborhood. So at the end of the program, we asked them, because in this, in this program, you're getting really high resolution data that allows you to stay within a certain energy consumption limit. So say you want to spend 300 kilowatt hours a month, but you were always exceeding it to 350 or 400, We'd be sending you text messages, so you always stay below 300. When we asked people what they wanted as an incentive in exchange for us controlling their appliances, they had a chance to keep either the money that they were getting, they were receiving for their services, or the information. 80% of them preferred the information. Wow. And these are low, low middle income neighborhoods. And what did that information look like? One of them was the text messages that I just yeah. mentioned that allows you to keep uh, with below a limit. The other one was just, it was, it began as a pay one page report, but then people kept asking for more data and ended up being like a 10 page report on how many times they opened the fridge, the number of times during the day when they have the most sales, um, the appliances that consume the most energy, strategies that they can use to save energy, how they compare to their neighbors and how off their different appliances are from the baseline efficiency. The most interesting thing is that it was mainly women who were in the house in these businesses at different times of the day. And this was completely unexpected. The woman said that since they had the reports in their home, they had more saying power in decision-making. Wow. Because they knew several strategies that they needed to implement to save money and energy. But their husbands, unfortunately, did not respect them enough to follow these strategies. But once they had the data and they proved to be saving money, then their husbands believed them. And this is one of the things, unfortunate things about how the crazy the world is. But they really enjoyed this new saying power because of the data that they had inside the home. And so even more energy was going to be saved than if they received the monetary incentive. Yes, I think so. Yes, exactly. This is another great point. That um, if you have, and this is one of the things of the rebound effect in the US, that some of the money that you save from energy, you just go to buy new appliances because they're not getting the money. They could just receive the information. All this could be just directed to pure savings monetary and energy-wise. Wow. And so you saw that direct impact when you were working in Latin America? Yes, yes. That's incredible. What else did you see? What other impacts did you see when you were working there? Uh, you know, I mean, for me, the most interesting thing was this, uh, 
decision-making empowerment, working with uh, women in deciding microprices and uh, homes was completely unexpected. In terms of impact, it was really just eye-opening how far you really can, you can push technology to being placed in the systems and completely replace ones that legacy systems or ones that could have been implemented. It's really interesting how you can engage users if you work with them from the beginning. But also it was really interesting because we deployed this technology. It was hard to deploy it. And this gave us a lot of street cred with the utility and with the local development banks. So this allowed us to really step into meetings that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to have and be part of the discussion, decision-making about sustainable energy for the country. Now there's several programs in the region that could be potentially, I think we inspired to follow through on this. Actually, we're going to be implementing very similar projects now in Mexico, Mexico City, which is the second largest city in, the, in, the, in, the, in Latin America. That's exciting. So I'd, I'd love to hear how you've taken what you did in your PhD. When did you graduate? In January. In January. Congratulations. Um, so Thank you. 10 months now. What, what have you done with what you've learned in your PhD and how does it translate to the work you're doing now at your company? Yes, thank you. So when I was graduating, I was thinking about what is the baseline root problem of what I was working with. And I wanted to enable an ecosystem of people to work on solutions on sustainable energy. And I thought that the first thing to do there was present people with good data for designing the mm. systems. So I started a company called Sinampa that is working on building data for sustainable energy in the region. So we create, similar to what they did in the PhD, representative samples in some of the most important cities of a country using wireless sensor networks. And we combine this data with thousands of disaggregated data sources of energy across a country. And we pull them together into a platform called Cosmos, which we're releasing in a few weeks for people to come into and play with the data and use it for decision-making around energy. So entrepreneurs can come in and think about new schemes or new models or policymakers or journalists or banks. Because I thought there was a big gap on clean data for decision-making, which I really wanted to address. So that's what we're working on now. Uh, we've built all the data for Mexico and Central America, which is over 700 million data points. I think it's a unique data set for wow. the region. And it's clean, validated, aggregated. And we're doing our second deployment of sensors in Mexico next year in partnership with a couple of big organizations. And another thing that I do on the side is uh, building, I'm really into platforms and working on a platform for environmental justice in the region as well. And this is just like a pure just passion project because I'm interested about the field. And this uses three different sources of data, official data, like maps that we digitize, images that we digitize and put into the web. Um, we've built a natural language processing algorithm for finding news related to environmental justice in the country. We plot them and we're creating a community feed through an SMS bot where people can use to talk about issues related to pollution throughout the country. And we're using this to build algorithms. So this is what I've been involved since then. It's been a grind, to be honest, starting a company from scratch is yeah, very sure. hard. <laughs> but I'm really excited about it. And I'm learning a ton about data systems, about management. I mean, the problems that there are really get sustainable energy, but also the limitations of how, how far data can get you to solve yeah. the problem. Um, we're fascinated with data these days, but I'm coming to think about slowly, like I said before, that's I think 30 to 40% of the solutions. Yeah, you've involved yourself in every, everywhere from the government and the organizations all the way down to the consumer in your work and your passion project. So what, what are you most excited about in your field in the future? So what I was working on uh, for my PhD on, on the sensor networks in the field, I really had my head in the sand about what was happening in the world. I was working on the technology and the sensors and the data, 
and I was dreaming that they could be implemented as a cooperative of decentralized energy units working to balance mm. the grid. The element that I missed is that blockchain, sorry to be like ride the yeah. like blockchain <laughs> train, but really like the system that we we're building was built for yeah. blockchain. So right now I'm reading ton, a ton about it, thinking about what leap we can, can we take to introduce some elements of this to, to, to our work. And of course, I mean, I'm in the Bay Area, so it's like, obviously I'm going to talk about these two things, but yeah, I feel like it's at the intersection. I feel like ahead. it's almost taboo to talk about blockchain at this point without a real rational solution. But things like the micro incentives that you were talking about, that seems like they're, it could really lend itself to true transparency of this data. Yeah. So, for example, if we had implemented blockchain on the system, it, we would not need a third party to be addressing these energy exchanges. Similarly, for the data system that I'm building in Latin America, instead of selling the data, like say like a company like Bloomberg does, you can enable countries to profit from the data that they have. If people are using the data about their energy system for research, they get small payments for every time they do this. And perhaps that way countries could be better incentivized to release data, to increase transparency. If they were getting paid and benefiting from it, and not only third parties like aggregating all this data for them. Yeah. So it's really hard to see how the future is going to change, but it's nice to see that in place, these new emerging things are coming in that will really transform it. I mean, and this is exciting, but I'm also really excited about how these technologies can be used to enable justice, which is something that we have disregarded for a long time in these energy transitions, and which Nikki talked about, but it's fundamental to have them be long-lived to incorporate these elements. Great. So in my home, I have installed Hue lights. I have Amazon Alexa going, everything that I can that I think is saving energy. But it seems like there's a lot more to be done and that there might be some misconceptions about adding devices to save energy. What can the lis listeners of this podcast do to support your mission in their everyday lives? Yeah, so I'll mention that, but it's actually really interesting what you mentioned because there's research that shows that appliances that have connectivity use more energy than those that don't. So anyway, so that's just a side point, but what can they do? I would say if you look, the first thing you have to do if you want to save energy or conserve less, use less resources is first to take a long, hard look at yourself in the mirror and calculate your emissions. How often do you drive? Transportation is one of the biggest things that we have. What food do you eat? And then how often you travel and how much you spend time with other people. There's research that shows that the more time you spend with other people, the less resources you're consuming. Wow. So I would say to advance, uh, to advance the mission of using less stuff, I would say hang out more with your friends, change your eating habits, and just uh, take a look at how you like travel. Yeah, that's not, <laughs> that's not something that's too hard to digest. <laughs> no. That's not too hard. And I think that will give you more bang for your buck, more enjoyment than any of the smart appliances that you can buy. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm really interested to see how we can change on a community level. I'm also interested to see how this technology that you're working on and other people are working on can help to improve the efficiency of our grid and make that uh, challenge easier for all of us. Yes. Thank you very much. One last question for you. Sounds good. The, the name of the podcast is Somebody Call a Doctor. So in, in what sort of emergency should somebody call you? Call me if you are frustrated with your general research direction hmm. or if you are graduating and you don't know what step to take next. Oh. I can That's great. Why, why do you think you're qualified to do that? Because I have struggled a lot myself. <laughs> in many different ways from a personal level to an intellectual level and uh i'm slowly think, seeing it through so if anything to share my struggles with you i'd be happy to oh wonderful that. that's much more wholesome than i was expecting from uh energy with machine learning and ai 
<laughs> well, Diego, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much, Colin. I really appreciate you. Thanks so much for listening to Somebody Call a Doctor. Today we've been talking with Dr. Diego Ponce de Leon Burrito about his research at Berkeley, studying how we can use technologies like sensors and their data to make better use of our energy systems all around the world. For more information on Diego, check out our website, somebodycallaphd.com. If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who is doing interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycallaphd at gmail.com. See you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.